When you're online, have you ever seen those little clickbait links about celebrities, people that used to be on shows that you watched as a kid or shows that used to be on, and, and it's like, where are they now? What are they doing now? Uh, and, you know, it's like, what happened to the cast of Full House or the cast of Friends or Brendan Fraser or Wesley Snipes, you know? And, and so I, usually I just ignore those, but True Confessions, a few weeks ago, they got me. I clicked on one, all right? And uh, I saw a guy that I remember you know, watching in movies and shows when I was growing up and when I was, you know, years ago. But um, I was looking at Honey, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and all those kinds of things. Rick Moranis, right? This guy named Rick Moranis. And I, I thought to myself, whatever did happen to that guy? He was a funny dude. He was on lots of, you know, shows that I enjoyed years ago. And so I, I read on that and I come to find out he actually retired from acting because he wanted to take care of his two kids after his wife died from cancer. So he left the silver screen to basically take care of his kids. And a few years ago, he was uh, in an interview, and he was asked, like, how does it feel to leave all that creativity behind and and not do that anymore? And basically, his response was this. He said, I didn't walk away from that. I applied all of my creativity to my home life, to my kids. I was the same person. I didn't change. I just shifted my focus. And I just found that as an impressive and noble shift for a man who had an established acting career. Now, what does that have to do with the message that we're in today? You might be asking. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, As we continue in the Apostles' Creed, uh, we're taking this ancient document that has roots as far as the second century, the early Christian leaders put together to help sift out false teaching. And we're taking it and using it as a map to look at core Christian doctrines and then look at the passages that those doctrines come from in the Bible. And the last few weeks, we've specifically been focusing on the person of Jesus Christ because over 60% of the creed is focused on Christ. So we've looked at his, you know, you know, his, his nature as God, the second person and one God, three personhood, the, the Trinity. We've looked at his miraculous conception and birth. We looked at his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And today we're looking at the ascension of Jesus Christ. As the creed states, he ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. It's a great statement, but I think it still can leave some of us wondering, after Jesus ascended, what happened to him? I mean, I was a Christian for years, and I believed that Jesus rose from the grave and and that he was living and he ascended to heaven, but I never really fully grasped where exactly did he go and what exactly is he doing? So a lot like those links for the celebrities, that's where I was, and I think that's where some of you might be. We're like, wait, where did Jesus go exactly and what exactly is he doing now? And so as Christians, we proclaim he's alive, but we need to have a better understanding of what Jesus is doing. And this line in the creed sends us into scripture to better understand how to answer that question. So we're going to start today by turning in our Bibles to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be starting, (coughs) excuse me, with verse 44. And we're going to begin there, but I'm going to warn you now, I'm going to launch from this passage into numerous other verses to try to help us better understand where Jesus went, what he's doing, what that says about him. Like, how can we better see Jesus for who he is because of what he's doing in heaven right now? And then how do we respond to that understanding? So let's open up God's word. Let's drop into this moment in time where Jesus has risen from the grave. 
He's appeared to hundreds of people over the course of 40 days, and now he's with a gathering of faithful disciples, and he's preparing them for his departure back to heaven from earth. And so let's find ourselves in Luke 24, 44. And Jesus is speaking, and this is what we see here. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us this indestructible guide. Your spirit has written through the hands of appointed men. Thank you that it guides us to not only information about you, but how we can live like you, be transformed to be more like you. I pray for everyone watching live right now and for those of us in this room, wherever we are at in our spiritual journey, that today's time, Lord, as we learn from you, we ask that your Holy Spirit take us and move us one step closer uh, in our walk with you, that those who don't know you would come to know you and that those who know you would become even more like you. So Father, help us understand the ascension more today and what it means about our Savior and how we can respond to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just unpack these verses in Luke for a few minutes. Uh, we don't know how many people Jesus had around him. It's a small to medium-sized group of disciples. We're not exactly sure how many. And he reminds them that he foretold all these events that would take place. And he connects the dots. This is really cool. He basically has a little Bible study with these guys, right? Imagine how cool that would be. Who's your life group leader? Jesus, you know? And, and he takes the Old Testament passages and how they prophesied and predicted what would happen with the Messiah, the one that would come. And he says, I'm the one. And he, he helps connect the dots for them and says, you have seen me fulfill these prophecies. You were eyewitnesses of it. And so he rejoices with them in that. And then he gives them some final instructions. And then he tells them to remain in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them to proclaim the gospel. And then he leads them out of Jerusalem to the east, over the Mount of Olives, toward the city of Bethany on the other side. And then he ascends. And I just want you to get a visual of this because sometimes we read the Bible without understanding in our minds what's taking place. Uh, this is a layout of you know, the, the situation here. We've got the old temple in the middle of old Jerusalem, and then you would cross the Kidron Valley and go over the Mount of Olives toward Bethany. Jesus did this trip often. He would go over the Mount of Olives into Bethany and then back from Bethany back into Jerusalem. If you were to look at a modern-day satellite image of what we're talking about, this is what it looks like. And so you have the old Jerusalem here, and you've got the temple here, and then you would cross the Kidron Valley and go up and over the Mount of Olives and then drop down the other side back here toward Bethany. And I think what's so fascinating about this, if you soak it in, is somewhere in that picture is likely the spot where Jesus ascended. Uh, just soak that in for a minute. Like he was on the Mount Olives on the backside heading toward Bethany. So probably somewhere within that picture is where this moment 
happen. And the Old Testament prophet in Zechariah says that Jesus is going to return to, to the Mount of Olives. So we're talking about a real place. We're talking about a real event in history. Some of you have stood on the Mount of Olives. You can almost sense it when you're there, the, the intensity, the significance of that place. Some of you might be there next year when we're on our next church trip. But all that to say, this is a real place, a real moment in time. Not myth, not fiction, not folklore. And so take that in. And from here, Jesus says a blessing over this group of disciples, and right before their eyes, he ascends into heaven. And then they go back to Jerusalem. And here's a, here's, here's a tricky thing. It says they go back to Jerusalem rejoicing. Like goodbyes are not typically things that you feel good about. They just said goodbye to Jesus. He basically said, I'm not going to see you again until heaven. And so it's goodbye. I don't know about you, but most of my goodbyes, the hours that follow that, I don't feel like I'm rejoicing. I feel like it's more painful, right? Especially if it's a, I won't see you to heaven kind of a goodbye. And so Jesus just literally gave them a, I'm not going to see you until heaven, goodbye. They take off having a party. Like that doesn't make sense. Why were they rejoicing? Because they got it. They got it. They just had a Bible study with Jesus. He connected the dots, and they're going, oh, wait. So we know who you are. We know where you're going. We know what you're going to do. And that clarity led them to go back to Jerusalem rejoicing because of who Jesus is, where he's going, and what he's doing. And in the same way, when we understand the ascension of Christ at a deeper level, it'll cause us to rejoice because of who Jesus is, where he went, what he's doing, and how we should respond to that. And so I just want to launch from this passage now into really four understandings of who Christ is and how we should respond to that because he ascended into heaven. The first is this. Because of the ascension, Jesus is now our reigning king. He's a reigning king. The creed says that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. We usually get the heaven part pretty good, but, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes, but what does it mean that Jesus is sitting? Like, is he in some like, easy chair in heaven going, man, I'm just kicking back, taking it easy. What does it mean that he sat down? Let's look at a couple other passages that reference this. Uh, Mark 16, 19, the ascension from the account of Mark says that so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 1, 3, speaking of Jesus, it says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so what do we do with this Jesus sitting concept? When we see Jesus sit down, it's a picture of one, him accomplishing what he came to earth to do. And secondly, it's a picture of him taking his rightful seat of authority to reign and then commence his heavenly ministry. See, he didn't leave earth because the people successfully killed him and got rid of him. He didn't leave earth because he wasn't wanted. He left because he accomplished what he came here to do. And his work of redeeming humanity from the penalty and power of sin through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave was finished. His sin-bearing, atoning ministry is done, and now his heavenly intercessory ministry begins. So Jesus did what he came to do, and he sat down. Like he made the perfect offering. There's nothing else to do on the matter. And then 
His ascension was also the catalyst for him to send the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says in the book of John that that's to our advantage. So we're going to look in two weeks at what that means about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to go down that road right now. And so we see that after Jesus atoned for our sins, he took his rightful place at the right hand of majesty in full honor and authority and power. Jesus sitting was a declaration of his perfect work for the purification of sin. So he's sitting, but he's not resting. He's ruling. He's reigning over earth from the right hand of the Father. So what do we do with this right hand language? This is an expression that means a position of equal authority, equal honor, equal rank, equal power. The Father has bestowed upon the Son all authority and all power. So when you get in your mind this mental image of Jesus sitting down in heaven, it's not him sitting down going, whew, that was hard, I gotta take a break. You need to think about him sitting on a throne. Think of a king taking his throne and then all the power and all the authority that comes from that new moment. So what's he doing now? He's sitting on the throne of heaven in all his glory reigning over earth. But if we're going to be honest, sometimes it doesn't feel like Jesus is ruling. All his enemies have been defeated. Let's get that straight. His enemies have been defeated. Death, sin, they've been defeated. But he has not fully subdued them yet. So we still see war and sickness and poverty and violence and slavery and addiction and all these other horrific events in humanity. What do we do with that? We have to remember that Christ's kingdom is present. He's ruling right now, but it's also future. He's going to fully and finally bring the kingdom at a moment in time in the future. So his kingdom is now and coming. His enemies are conquered, but not yet subdued. Why hasn't he subdued all the enemies yet? Because your family who doesn't know Christ, he's giving them a window to come to know him. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your schoolmates, he's giving them a window to come to know him. Jesus is delaying the full submission of his enemies under the conquest so that there's a window of opportunity for them to come to know him. In the shadow of tragedy is God's patience for those who don't know him. But that day is going to come to a close. One day he will fully, finally reign. And so in the meantime, we have to place our trust in our reigning king and his heavenly wisdom and his righteous sovereignty. Our response to Jesus as our reigning king is to trust. We have to trust him. I will trust him as I wait for his rule to be complete. I will trust him as my loved ones pass away. I will trust him in the shadow of senseless shootings and similar types of violence. I will trust him with the threat of pipe bombs and caravans and whatever else the news is throwing at us. I will trust him no matter what happens with the midterm elections in a few days. Like we get the privilege of voting. We get the opportunity to exercise our convictions, all those things. But our hope doesn't lie in any political party or candidate. Why? Because Jesus is our king. And Jesus is not going to be surprised by what happens in the election. It's like, ooh, didn't see that candidate getting voted in, right? Why? Because he's reigning. So we don't put our hope in people. We don't put our hope in the political platform. Exercise our privilege. Exercise our convictions. But ultimately, we trust in Jesus, our king. He reigns over earth, not man. 
And so we have to trust in Christ. Because of the ascension, Jesus is our reigning king, and because he's our reigning king, I'm going to trust. Secondly, because of the ascension, Jesus is also our interceding priest. He's our interceding priest. Where did he go? What's he doing? He went to heaven and is now acting as a priest on our behalf. Romans 8.34 says it this way. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is, right? Currently doing, is interceding for us. You will not understand the ascension until you understand our need for an intercessor. An intercessor is one who stands in the gap between two parties to advocate, to mediate, to make a case for one to the other. And what we see here is that God is holy and he's righteous and he's just, but we are sinful. And God has a justified case against us and our sin. If Jesus was not standing in the gap between us and his holy father interceding for us, we would have no hope of reconciliation before God. We would have no hope for forgiveness of sins if Jesus wasn't interceding for us right now. And what we would be doing instead is staring down eternal punishment and forever separation from God. So to better understand how this works, we've got to take a little bit of time to unpack some Old Testament understanding and imagery of the sacrificial system that God had set up for temporary atonement for sin. In that system, the priests were the intercessors for the people. They were representatives of the people. And so uh, some of you are familiar with this, but for those of you who may not, let's unpack that for a second. Uh, the high priest did regular sacrifices on behalf of the people. But Yom Kippur, for example, the Hebrew for Day of Atonement, happened once a year. And on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take a bull and he would slaughter the bull to cover his sins. Notice the high priest had to sacrifice a bigger animal than the rest of the people, okay? So I'm so glad I did not have to wake up this morning, brush my teeth, and then slaughter a bull, and then come to church to preach, okay? And then what he would do is he would take two goats. One he would slaughter as a sacrifice offering for the sins of the people. The second he would take his hands and put on the goat as a symbol of transference of the sins of the people onto the goat, and then they would release that goat into the wilderness never to return. It was a symbol that the sins were leaving the people, okay? So aren't you glad you didn't have to wake up this morning and grab a couple goats before you came to church? Grab the kids, honey. Don't forget the two goats, okay? We don't have to do that anymore. But here's what would happen. The high priest would take the blood from the bull, the blood from the goats. He would have to go into the temple to make atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. Now, some of you are familiar with this imagery, but for those of you who may not, this might help. Let's just kind of take a visual tour through what was taking place. Uh, this is a model of Herod's temple from the first century. This is an actual model in Jerusalem. It's huge. It's, it's amazing looking. And if you zoom in on the actual temple, uh, you have the gates, uh, the different courts that were in the temple, and then you have this large building that was the holy place. And the high priest would go through those doors into the holy place. And then as he went into the holy place, he would come before the veil that separated God's presence 
from the people. It was a barrier between God's presence and the people. Here's another cross section just to kind of look at what that, you know, a depiction of what that might have been like. And then he had to go, this next picture is an actual replica, uh, through the curtain, through the veil, separating God's presence from the people. And he would offer through the sprinkling of blood, the goat's blood, the bull's blood, onto the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the altar of God on behalf of the people. This is what had to take place for the temporary atonement of sins. And that same priest would do that year after year after year after year until he died and then raised up another priest to do it the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year until he died on and on and on. Follow? So this is where we you know, have our minds blown and are so extremely grateful that when Jesus Christ offered himself on the cross, he became the perfect and final sacrifice on the behalf of human sin. That's why he's called the Lamb of God, right? And at his death, the veil in the temple, and we're not talking about a piece of Kleenex, we're talking about thick, you know, a thick curtain was ripped from top to bottom. I wonder who ripped it, right? Okay, it was ripped from top to bottom, symbolizing that now access to God has been given for people. Jesus was the final high priest. And what you love about Jesus and what's unique about him is not only was he acting as high priest when he died and raised and ascended and is interceding for us, he also was the offering. He's both the high priest and the offering at the same time. Let's look at this unpacked in scripture. Let's go to Hebrews 7. Told you I'm going to throw some verses at you this morning. Hebrews 7, 23. Now with that in your mind, this will make even more sense. In Hebrews 7, 23 through 27, we see this. The former priests were many in number because they had been prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. That means perfectly, finally, fully, completely. He's able to save completely, forever. Those who draw near to God through him, read the next part with me, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What's Christ doing? He's living to make intercession for us. It continues on. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he was offered up himself. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, Christ does not need to be repeating his sacrifice. The cross established his permanent and indestructible priesthood. He can't be removed by death like the other priest. He does not need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins in order to offer a sacrifice for the people. He is both the offering and the priest who offers it. His death completely satisfied God's demands forever. And now, where is he? In heaven. What's he doing? He's interceding on our behalf before his Father. Without the ascension, there's no intercession. This is so critical. And we get this when we understand what's really taking place in that moment. A phrase that I like to think of is this, like a defense lawyer, Jesus is always pleading our case before the Father and offers his nail-pierced hands as exhibit A. Think about this. We have a case against us in the eyes of a holy judge. We have our sin. 
every idolatrous thought, every idolatrous action, every act of pride, every lust, every lie told, every promise broke, every word of gossip or slander, every perversion, every outburst of anger, every moment of drunkenness or substance abuse, every moment of arrogance or cruelty or dishonesty or disobedience before God is against us. And we stand before a holy God with this giant portfolio, this big case of all of our sins. What are you going to say to God in that moment? If we had to stand before God with all of our sins right here and have to give an answer for them, what are we going to say? Because if we deny it, we're lying. And if we admit it, we're condemned. And right before you have to even utter a word, Jesus Christ stands up and stands before the Father and goes, myself, I stand in the gap. I was pierced for their transgressions. My blood covers them. It acquits them of their sin. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. I bought them. They're new. They're mine. They're adopted. They're now yours. That's what this means. But we don't think about that. Like, think about it. Right now, if you're in Christ, you're saved right now because Jesus is interceding for you right now. He doesn't stop. He lives to make intercession. It's nonstop, ongoing intercession. And we rejoice over that. So for those who've trusted in Christ, have trusted in his work on the cross, you're being saved right now, this moment, because Jesus is interceding for you this moment. But if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you are not covered by this intercession right now because you have stood outside of it. But yet Jesus has invited you into it. Some of you are still trusting in yourself. You're, you're trusting in some religious duty. You're, you're trusting in something to try to be made right with God. And you're starting to understand if Jesus is the only one who intercedes for you, there's no other way. And so you have to come into relationship with him. You have to admit that you're sinful and lost and broken. You have to come and say, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose from the grave. I believe that you ascended. I don't have all my answers to all my questions, but I know enough. I need you. And then you give your life to Christ. You can do that right now this minute. You can do that in the minutes to come. You just come to a place of honesty before God and say, I need you. Come into my life. That's what it means to come under the intercession. Look again at Hebrews 7.25. He's able to save to the uttermost. Again, that means forever and completely those who draw near to God through him. And so if you don't know him, come to him and then you'll be covered by his intercession. And for those of us who know Jesus, what is our response to Jesus as our high priest? We rest. We rest in what Jesus has done to secure our salvation. Some of you love Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you're saved, but you, you suffer through what I would call spiritual anxiety. You still feel like there's something that you've done that will disqualify God from loving you. There's something that you can do that will make Christ let go of you. That's not a biblical teaching. He's interceding for you. So yes, we still wrestle with sin, but ultimately we know we're forgiven, we know we're adopted, we know that we're beloved children of God, we know that we've been empowered through the Holy Spirit to continue growing and looking like and acting like Christ. But outside of that, we come to this place of pushing away the spiritual anxiety. So maybe that's you if, you know, your time in reading God's word is not for the joy of spiritual nourishment. You're just do doing it because you think it's going to give you credit with God somehow. Or maybe your prayer life 
or that you serve in the church or you give to the church. Maybe you're not doing that out of an overflow of your love for Jesus. You're doing it because somehow you think it'll you know, help your case with God. That's, we need to push that away and rest in who Jesus is. Rest in what he's done. Rest in the debt being paid and him interceding for us. So because of the ascension, Jesus is my interceding priest. And because he's my interceding priest, I can rest. I can rest in who he is. I can rest in what he's done. Also, because of the ascension, Jesus is also our preparing forerunner. In biblical culture, it was very common and customary that when someone was traveling to another location, you would send someone ahead of you, a forerunner, who would prepare the lodging, the accommodations, and all those things. We see this in Scripture often. Uh, before Jesus went to the upper room, he'd send someone to go prepare it before he got there. Uh, we see John the Baptist come as a forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord before Jesus started his ministry. So here we see Jesus ascending to heaven, the dwelling place of God, and in the ascension, now he's playing the role of a forerunner, one who goes and prepares a place for the arrival of the guests who are coming. And the word for forerunner, by the way, is used only one time in the New Testament. And it's used of Jesus. It's in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Start to see the imagery that we just went through? Where Jesus has gone as a, what's the word? Forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So tying this to the imagery that we just saw, when the high priest in the Old Testament would go behind the curtain of the veil, he alone could do that. No one else could follow him because they would die in the presence of God. Jesus as the forerunner broke through the curtain and now as our forerunner allows us to come after him into the presence of God. A much less spiritual example is when you're watching a football game. And you see that they stretch that banner across the field for the team. And you've got that one guy ahead of the team who breaks through the banner and then the rest of the team follow on the field. He's being a forerunner. And so we see Jesus break into the access place of God and we get to follow him into that place because he is our forerunner. And as our forerunner, he's preparing our eternal home for arrival. He's prepping heaven. You know, as Jesus was getting closer and closer to his death, he started freaking out the disciples because he started talking about it more. He started talking about leaving and dying, and the disciples were getting squirrely and, and, and fearful. And so we see in John 14, he hit this head on, verses 1 through 3. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. As a Christian, when we read these verses, we should be like, woohoo, that's our home. That's heaven. Jesus went to prepare our home for our arrival. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you, and you're going to be where I am. And so if you're in Christ, your future home is certain. It's secure. It's eternal. So Jesus did not disappear into the cosmos to do whatever. He didn't do an oogway and like just evaporate into the cosmos. He went to a place. He went to heaven. And because Jesus went somewhere, we've got somewhere to go. And where Jesus went, we're going to go. 
And Jesus ascended, those who are in Christ will also ascend. So he's preparing our home. He's our forerunner who's preparing a place for us. Our response to Jesus as our preparing forerunner is to anticipate, to look forward to, to long. We long for heaven. We long to be in God's presence face to face. We long to be free from the presence of sin and pain. We feel the gravitational pull of our eternal home that's ours in Christ. So because of that, because of the ascension, Jesus is not only our reigning king, he's not only our interceding high priest, he's also our preparing forerunner. And lastly for today, one way we can understand Jesus in light of the ascension is that Jesus also is our commissioning commander. We see it in all the accounts before he ascended. He gave implicit directions to the disciples that also transcend to us today. For example, in Luke 24, 47, we saw it, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus gave the game plan. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise I'm going to hang out and give evidence to my resurrection. I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to disperse throughout the whole world telling everybody about me. That's what our commander has given. And it's interesting. When he went to the Mount of Olives with these disciples, it says he raised his hands and blessed them. What, what does that mean that he raised his hands? He wasn't looking for high fives. Like, hey, man, I'm out of here. Hey, give me a high five. You know, okay, let's do that. He wasn't doing that. He was commissioning them. He wasn't just giving them like, you know, farewell thoughts. He was commissioning them to go. And so, of course, we think of the great commission that Jesus has given us. In fact, read this with me out of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, because we can't forget what our commissioning commander has instructed us to do. Read Matthew 28, 19, 20 with me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The risen and ascended Jesus commissions his disciples, his followers, us, to go tell the world that forgiveness of sins happens through Jesus Christ alone. The ascension is also our commission. We've been authorized and dispatched to tell the world about Jesus from the people underneath our roof, people that live next to our homes, to getting on planes and going to other nations. And so our ascending king, our reigning king, our ascending priest and interceding priest, our ascending forerunner and preparing forerunner is also our ascending and commissioning commander. What is our response to Jesus being our commissioning commander? It's to go. It's to obey and go. The disciples obeyed. They went back to Jerusalem. They waited for the Holy Spirit and then they went and did what he said. We're supposed to obey and go as well. We're supposed to go locally, regionally, and globally to share Christ. Now we look at the fruit of new life that we have around this room. These are our traits of a growing disciple. And we look at that one missionary. That's our effort to become the person that God's called us to be by obeying this commission. And so we're a missionary in the form of a mom and dad, in the form of a neighbor, in the form of a coworker or a fellow student, or in the form of a strategically placed stranger by God. That's, that's our call. If you call yourself a Christian, the commission is not an option for you. 
We're to go where God calls us to go. Now, some of you, on top of that, might be sensing a calling to possibly full-time ministry, maybe as a missionary or a pastor. And if that's the case, like we want to know about it so we can help you get on a track to develop that in your life. So get in touch with one of our pastoral staff and we'll help you explore the idea of being full-time in ministry. Or maybe you've been feeling a sense to reach more people by planting a church. You don't even have to leave your job to plant a church. And we have a church planting pipeline or process to help you know how to develop a church plant and then launch into reaching other people through a planting strategy. And if that's something that you're intrigued in or want to explore, uh, get in touch with us, especially pastors uh, Rick Duncan or Rick Eimers who oversee that area. In fact, if any of those are of interest to you, uh, email us at connect at cvconline.org. Say, hey, I think God might be calling me into ministry. I just want to talk about it. And we'll get in touch with you and explore that idea. I mean, imagine what God would do with an army of faithful people obeying the commander's call to go. So because of the ascension, Jesus is our commissioning commander. Our response to that is to go. And when we understand the ascension of Christ more with clarity, the winds that we have when Jesus ascended to heaven to the Father, then we see these roles. I like how well-known theologian and reformer Martin Luther captured some of these concepts. He said, in his life, Christ is an example showing us how to live. In his death, he is a sacrifice. In, uh, uh, sorry, in his resurrection, a conqueror. In his ascension, a king. In his intercession, a high priest. That's the role of the Lord. I, can, I even think about Rick Moranis' uh, concepts that he talked about. That when he left the silver screen, he didn't change. He was still the same person. He just shifted his focus. I think Jesus did the same thing. When he died and rose and ascended, he didn't change who he was. Jesus didn't walk away from his divinity or mission. Now he's applying it to us from heaven. He didn't change. He just shifted his focus, which will help us shift our focus when we understand this. So I want to review these four points and the action steps with you for a second here. Because Jesus is my reigning king, I will trust. Because Jesus is my interceding priest, I will rest. Because Jesus is my preparing forerunner, I will anticipate. Because Jesus is my commissioning commander, I will go. Two questions for you. First one, when you look at those four actions, which one comes easiest for you? Which one's easier for you? Is it easier for you just to trust the Lord no matter what's going on? Is it easy for you to go? Here's the second question. Which one's most difficult for you? Is it difficult for you to trust? You find yourself still trying to control and, and u- utilize man. Is it, is it difficult for you to rest in your salvation? That you still feel like you have to earn your way to God somehow instead of just resting in what Christ has done? Do you have a difficulty in anticipating? Life is just a blur and you don't even think about heaven much. Is it a challenge for you to go? Here's what I want to do to draw some action steps out of our time. The first action step is this. If you don't have Christ as your Savior, you need to be made right with God through your faith in Christ. And so whether you're watching online or here in this room, your first step is to basically confess and repent to the Lord that you need Him and that you're a sinner and invite Him into your life. Maybe you've already done that today. Maybe 10 minutes ago you did that. Maybe you can do that right now. But if you turn to Christ... We want to come alongside you and celebrate with you 
and also help you grow in your relationship with Christ. So make sure on your response card, you mark that you came to Christ today, or you can email us if you're online at connect at cvconline.org. Say, I gave my life to Christ. And then we'll come alongside you and help you grow in your relationship with Christ. As far as those of us who are believers, here's my action step for you today. I want you to think about the one that was most difficult for you. Was it to trust, rest, anticipate, go? I want you to think about that. I want you to think about an action step that you can take to better grow in that response to Christ as your ascended king, priest, forerunner, and commander. What's something that you can do? And then share that with someone on the ride home. Share that over lunch. Share that in your life groups this week. I'll go first. The easiest thing for me is to rest in the Lord. And I, I'm, not, I'm not afraid that I'm going to lose my salvation. I believe in what Jesus did. I, I, don't, I really lose no sleep over my salvation. I've, I've rested in who Christ is and what he did. I think the one I struggle with most out of those four is the anticipate piece. It's just easy with life, just all right here, to forget to anticipate going home to heaven someday. And so I basically came up with two action steps. One, I will use John 14 language in my prayer life more regularly. Lord, thank you that you went to prepare a place for me. Thank you that you're coming back to get me. I long forward. I look forward to being with you someday. Also, I will mention heaven every day for the next 30 days in conversation. So whether it's at home with the family, on the phone with somebody, a friend, um, in some sort of conversation, I'm going to bring up heaven as just this trigger to remind me that I'm anticipating that day. My hope is that after 30 days of doing that, it'll become like a new norm in my life that will help me anticipate heaven more. What about you? Which one do you struggle with? And what will you do to take a step to grow in that area? Here's what I want to do. I want to give you a minute to pray about this. I'm going to start us in prayer, and I'm just going to let you pray. Lord, help me with this area. Lord, help me see a way that I can grow. Or if you know, Lord, help me to follow through with this way that you want me to grow. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. And thank you for your ascension. I don't think we thank you for your ascension enough. I don't think we grasp all the victories that we have because of the ascension. So Lord, I pray that you help us today have a greater understanding of who you are, where you're at, and what you're doing right now. Thank you for reigning over earth. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. Lord, you're interceding for us right now. Thank you for advocating for us before the Father through your perfect sacrifice. Help us to rest in that, not to experience spiritual anxiety, but just to rest in who you are and what you've done. Lord, help us to anticipate home, not in such a way that we're no good here, but Lord, help us not to live like our life is about earth. Help us to anticipate going home and taking a lot of people with us. And Lord, help us to go and share the gospel. Lord, I pray for those who need to take that step of faith today in you, that you give them the courage and boldness to repent, turn to you, and then let us come alongside them to help them grow. So Father, take this time right now, listen to the voices and the hearts of your people as they lift up their struggles and ways that they can grow in them. And so right now, just take some time before the Lord and pray about your application.